I never wanted to do anything else growing up or go to West Point. I, 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 no other school ever attracted me. No other profession ever attracted me. I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to be an infantry soldier, and I wanted to lead soldiers. That's John Headley. And when he says he wanted to go to West Point and become an infantry soldier, he's not just blowing smoke. John overcame a lot of obstacles in achieving that goal, including not one, but two rounds of experimental surgery just to get himself qualified to fight. His reward at the end of that long, difficult road was a tour in Vietnam starting in July of 1969, where he ended up leading the Army's legendary red-scarved recon platoon known as Fox Force. In this episode, John shares the story of that journey, his experiences in Vietnam, and a surprise ending that will boggle your mind and warm your heart at the same time. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. This is episode 56, The Red Scarf. John Headley retired from the Army in 1991 after 24 years at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. In the 32 years since then, he's found a new purpose, caring for veterans, especially those who served in combat. But even with two or three careers spanning 56 years, it was one year in Vietnam that defines John to this day. He wrote a book about that year called Saddle Up, The Story of a Red Scarf. John grew up traveling the world as an army brat. His father had fought in World War II in Korea and had worked at one point for General Douglas MacArthur. As a young man, John's father had been determined to go to West Point, and after three attempts, he was finally accepted into the class of 1939. And then he wasn't. The War Department withdrew his acceptance on the grounds that his entry date put him six days over the age limit. The unfulfilled dream of the father eventually became the obsession of the son. And that's where our conversation begins. In high school, we would make yearly trips down to West Point to go watch a parade and go to a football game. Now, one year I was within touching distance of President Eisenhower. Maybe it was a reunion year for him or something. And that solidified my desires. I mean, there's nothing more impressive than a full-dress review on the plains of West Point, particularly for a high school kid. I tried to get to West Point out of high school. I didn't make it. I think I was a fourth or fifth alternate or something. So my chances were non-existent. So the day after I graduated from high school, there was an OD staff car in my driveway. 
uh, in Rochester to pick me up and drive me to the reception station in Buffalo, New York, whereupon I enlisted in the United States Army. You enlisted? I enlisted, yeah, at age 17. Wow. Uh, I, spent my, I spent my 18th birthday in basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, saying, what the heck am I doing here? Uh, but uh, I had heard that the Army ran out of prep school. In those days, it was in Fort Belmore, Virginia. And I thought, you know, if I couldn't get high enough grades coming out of high school, maybe if I go to prep school with all the references on English and math, English and math, English and math, that's all we study. It's all we prep for. You know, maybe that will get this not too bright light uh, uh, qualified enough to go. Uh, and so I had to take a test entrance exam for that place. What year are we talking about now? 63, 64. And in those days, prep school was only for primarily regular Army soldiers who wanted to go to West Point. It, it wasn't a, a, a poop school for recruited athletes like it is today or anything else. It was for soldiers out of the Army who wanted to go to West Point that needed a little help getting there. And so while we were there, we were encouraged to go down and see our congressman because if we could get a congressional appointment while we were there, that saved one slot for another soldier who couldn't get to a congressman or whatever to vie for the slot open to the Army guys. Uh, so I uh, I managed to get to D.C. I met Representative Ostertag from the Rochester area, had a nice discussion with him. The end result was that he offered me an appointment to West Point for the class of 1968. And that's how I got it. So you graduated West Point uh, spring of 68. Yes. Right. So this is this is after the siege at Quezon. This is after Tet. I mean, those things happened during your last semester at West Point. Uh, yeah, that, that's correct. Yes. How much did that news inform your conversations at the uh, academy? Uh, you know, when we entered in the spring of 64, probably nobody could find Vietnam on a map. While we were there, we realized we were going to become a wartime class because that's where we were going to go. Um, as the news came in, particularly after 65, uh, with the Iodrang Valley fight with the 7th Cav, which was the first big fight with the NBA, we began to get more news. We began to get announcements of funerals for returning graduates who were going to be buried in the West Point Cemetery. Oh, my. When we started to get a couple of guys from 66 or 67 come back, in a lot of cases, we knew those guys or we knew their names. So it became more of a reality to us. Yeah, um, it's, not just a, it's not just news reports at that point, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when a guy from, from your company who graduated two years ahead of you that you knew comes back to be buried, that has an impact on you. And particularly when you're a young kid. Early in his sophomore year, John began, for the first time, to struggle with some of the physical requirements of West Point. At 6'4 and 180 pounds or so, he had always performed well on PT tests, and now, all of a sudden, he wasn't. He failed PE that semester, and then he failed the re-exam that would have allowed him to rejoin his class, and he was dismissed from the Corps of Cadets. At his separation physical, a surgeon named Thomas Gear 
could see no reason why John should be unable to ace the physical requirements. The doctor began to suspect that the problem was a kind of birth defect in John's rib area. He decided that John's difficulties were not his fault, that he should remain a fully enrolled cadet, and that surgery would enable him to stay with his class. So I went to Walter Reed. Um, I spent, oh my God, probably a month or more there. I wanted, I had, I was kind of an experimental case for a, a bunch of thoracic surgeons. Um, I remember being taken into their conference room, you know, where they discuss unusual cases. And I was exhibit A one day <laughs> and all my exercise and stuff on anyway. So I went through some experimental surgery and recovered from it. Of all places, I was in the Vietnam ward. Uh, so guys, this guy, one guy used to come see me, been a helicopter pilot, had a hole through his forearm from a 51 caliber slug. Uh, my roommate had been an F-4 pilot, shot down in flames. His face was totally gone. They were rebuilding it. He had a blob of stuff for a nose with a couple of straws hanging out. And one day he had a pass. He said, John, look at this. I'm going to go meet my wife. And he pulled open a drawer and pulled out this beautiful case and opened it. And there were two ears in there that he stuck on the stubs on the side of his head. And this is what I'm seeing as a, as a sophomore at Westman. John recovered from the surgery and with the help of his professors and his classmates, finished his West Point career in good shape academically and physically. He received his commission and went straight to Ranger School where the same physical problems started showing up again. He was in danger of being bounced out of the army altogether. Again, he had a separation physical, this time at Martin Army Community Hospital at Fort Benning. Want to guess who was the chief of surgery there? That's right, Thomas Gear. The doctor gave John three options. Medical retirement with a small pension, which John was entitled to, a commission in a non-combat role like the Quartermaster Corps, or another experimental surgery. John was determined to serve as an infantry soldier. He chose the surgery, which was successful, but returning to Ranger School was off the table while John regained his strength. He was assigned a platoon there at Fort Benning while he continued his post-op care. And then it was off to Jungle Warfare School, a sort of abbreviated version of Ranger School, in Panama. And uh, then on uh, my 24th birthday, I landed in Vietnam on the 9th of July, 1969. Uh, Came in at Benoit and the airfield there, um, scared to death. Uh, you know, went to war with 200 of my best friends that I'd never met before, all by myself. Very lonely, lonely trip. Um, you get you, you sink into your own thoughts and the normal questions that one asks oneself before one goes to war. You know, am I going to be able to hack this? What am I going to do? If I get shot, I was married at that point. What's my wife going to think if I come home with an, an arm or a leg? Or and, and the biggest issue was, am I going to measure up? You know, I was a West Point grad. I was an infantry officer. And I wondered if I, you know, if I was going to be able to hack it or not. The question of, you know, am, am, am I going to be a coward or not? 
So when I got off the airplane, the heat just almost knocked you back in the airplane. Uh, the smells of burning shit and rotting vegetation and all that kind of stuff got to you. Um, and the fear factor. You know, holy mackerel, anybody would shoot at us? Um, they put us on buses to take us up to the replacement battalion. The buses all had screened windows, um, chicken wire type screening. Um, the bus driver was very proud to announce to us, guys, that's not for your ventilation. That's to prevent hand grenades from coming through the window of this bus as we go up to 90th replacement battalion. Uh, oh, 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 okay. Of course, none of us had any weapons or, or anything. And we flew up to Playco Air Force Base, unloaded there, got off a bus and went to Campanari, which was in the base camp of the 4th ID. And this is the Central Central Highlands, is that right? Central Highlands in Tupac. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you describe that for people who may not have seen it? Oh yeah, sure. Um, dirt roads, uh, a lot of big holes in them. Uh, let's see. This was July, so I uh, I don't think it was monsoon season yet. Uh, dry dust all over the place. Uh, the primary means of transportation for the Vietnamese was uh, was a cart um, pulled by a water buffalo or the ubiquitous Lambretta, uh, belching big clouds of gray smoke and, and uh, all kinds of people piled on the back with animals or produce or whatever. Uh, there were no rules to the road. The bigger you were, the more privilege you had. Um, went past uh, uh, shacks, uh, residence houses that were totally built out of flattened beer cans. You know, so the whole whole wall was Budweiser beer cans that had been cut and flattened. And that was what they used to build the side of their house. Saw several of those. Saw one Budweiser and I saw one from PBR. Uh, the place was dirty. It smelled. Uh, kids running around in rags. Um, a lot of women carrying stuff on their heads and whatever. And a lot of guys just sitting around smoking and, and uh, bullshitting and scowling at us as we drove by. Uh, not necessarily a welcoming environment. Uh, I saw, saw some guys on crutches missing parts of their leg or whatever. Uh, I saw a couple guys without arms, obviously war casualties. But, uh, you know, and the, the thing that struck me was the kids. And the kids running alongside the, the trucks begging for cigarettes or, or begging for food. You know, American soldiers are normally pretty generous when it comes to kids. And so guys throwing cans of sea rations down or the, the famous John Wayne candy bar that nobody wanted to eat and threw those down to the kids. So we turned off uh, the highway on a, onto an even more bumpy, rutted dirt road, went past the uh, Batan garbage dump, which smelled as you would expect an open garbage dump to smell like. Uh, and then all of a sudden in front of me, I saw my new home. Uh, it was to be my home from July until the end of November, or maybe early December. Uh, the first thing I saw was three concentric rows of triple concertina wire, um, tanglefoot barbed wire strung in between at varying heights and so forth, and a bunch of bunkers. So uh, the, we pulled into a parking area in the firebase. I got out of the truck. There was a young soldier there. I don't know what his rank was. He wasn't wearing a shirt or anything. 
And he said, are you Lieutenant Headley? And I said, yes, I am. He said, please come with me. I'll take you to the company CP command post where you can meet your company commander. I went up to meet my company commander, Captain Roger House, and went into his CP, which was a sandbag bunker, uh, got a little briefing on the company and its organization and strength and what it had been doing for operations. And he said, okay, I'm going to call your platoon sergeant. Uh, he's going to come up and get you and take you down to your platoon CP on the bunker line. Uh, then you get to know your NCOs and we'll talk again. Okay. So my platoon sergeant came up, hell of a nice guy. I said, okay, Lieutenant, I'll take you down and I want to introduce you to the squad leaders. Great. And here I'm thinking, okay, this is it. Uh, I'm going to take command of 30 some odd combat veterans as a brand new, very wet behind the ears lieutenant. Obviously, I mean, my jungle fittings were brand new. My jungle boots were brand new. The camel cover on my steel pot was brand new. I mean, I was a quintessential newbie, right? FNG, and I, mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. Like you stepped out of a magazine. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and every orifice in my body puckered up because how 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 am I going to deal with this? You know? But I, I went down uh, to my CP. I, I I met my RTO. I had three squad leader, four squad leaders. There are three rifle squads, one. Um, weapon squad, sitting down, just beginning to talk to him. And I had rehearsed, of course, and thought for hours about how, what's that, what are those first minutes, minutes going to be like? How am I going to approach this? How can I let these combat veterans know um, that I want to learn from them? Right? And then basically, I, that's what I started to tell them. Okay, I'm the new guy. Obvious. No bones about it. I admit it. I know it. I don't know shit. Um, you guys know it all. You've been there. Uh, you've been through it. Uh, I am the platoon leader, so this is my responsibility. Uh, I'm responsible for everything that happens in this platoon, good or bad. But I would hope that you guys will help train me. I will ask for advice. Uh, I will ask, how, how do you do this? What's the best way to do that? Um, don't ever hesitate to come up one-on-one to me. And, and, and give me some advice. Don't ever call me out in front of the soldiers because I won't stand for that. But you're more than welcome one-on-one to come up and have a talk with me. Um, that seemed to be going okay. And all of a sudden my RTO comes out and taps me on the shoulder and says, Lieutenant, uh, CL is on the horn for you. Yeah, okay. Um, hey, John, saddle your guys up. You're leaving. Say again, saddle up. You're leaving. Okay, where am I going? And he said, well, you, we had a helipad outside the wire. And he said, go out to the pad and you'll find, I think it's three trucks, four trucks there. And you're going 14, 15 clicks further down the highway um, to a village that had been hit by the VC last night. And they need your help and you're going to go down there and secure them. Yes, sir. <laughs> so... Uh, my call sign was Apache 6. The first platoon in Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 14th Infantry was Apache, right? So I was Apache 6. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I, I can be like Geronimo, maybe, you know, fearless warrior. Um, and, I, and again, I'm, no bones about it, I was scared to death. Here I am going out on a mission. I've been in the, in the battalion maybe an hour and a half. I don't even know my squad leader's names by heart yet. 
and here I go. And that was my first day in the field in the first of the 14th. That first day is one of my worst nightmares, I will tell you, because uh, we got down to the village and they had in fact been hit by the VC the night before because they'd evidently refused to pay their rice tribute or maybe a couple guys had refused to go off with them and join them. I don't know what the reason was, um, but my first sight as we got off the trucks was um, the village chief's wife hanging by her feet with a baby that had been cut out of her stomach and was hanging by the umbilical cord. That was my introduction to the, the worst side of Vietnam. Uh, her husband, the village chief, and the village school teacher had been executed and her bodies had been thrown down the well, which is the only source of palatable water for that village. That, 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 that was my first day. Um, I mean, obviously it still affects me. I will, I will never, I will never lose that picture of that poor woman hanging there. And I, and I, I thought, oh my God, how can this be? You know, and, and I wanted to retch, but I swallowed it because I, again, I wasn't going to show a sign of weakness in front of my combat hardened soldiers. I will tell you, my knees were trembling. My stomach was in, a, in an uproar and I was having problems comprehending what I was really looking at. Um, but then my training kicked in, and I said, okay, Hadley, you got to secure this freaking village, man. Okay, let's go see how you do that. Fortunately for me, nothing happened at night. Got up in the morning uh, to the sound of roosters crowing. Uh, Vietnam in the morning is a wonderful place. It's not as hot. The humidity is not as bad. You get good smells from the vegetation and stuff that's damp from the dew, right? Mm. Uh, and, and and it's it's a beautiful country, and the scenery was pretty. And the villages, the huts were very picturesque. I mean, you know, if people hadn't been shooting at you, it'd been kind of a neat place. Um, and and so the villagers came down. They lived in, in the huts on stilts. And they had a notch log ladder to get up and bring all their their animals up at night and then pull that log up after them so the animals didn't escape or, or didn't fall prey to roving whatevers. Um, and and uh, pretty soon the fire started you could smell stuff cooking and whatever. And I felt a phenomenal sense of relief. I had made it through my first night. We, we stayed there for um, 10 days, I think. So how did the transition from Charlie Company to Echo Company, how did you learn about that? You, you must have heard of those guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, they were either famous or infamous. You can take your pick. Um, and they, they always wore red scarves 24-7. You never saw one of those guys without those red scarves. Uh, and they had a reputation. Every time they went out, they got, they got into contact with the bad guys every time without fail, even though that wasn't their mission, but that's what happened. And they were known as a rough, tough bunch of guys, right? And their platoon sergeant was a big, huge, muscle-bound guy, like a bodybuilder. 
uh, and people were scared to death of him. Uh, he'd walk up the street and on the fire base to go to the chow hall, everybody would get out of his way. He'd go get in line, everybody in front of him would get out of his way so he could get in line. He'd get his food and we had a, we had a, a kind of a fly tent set up with a, some picnic table things. He'd go to find a place to sit. Everybody else at that table would get up and leave. They're scared to death. He looked bad. I mean, he looked like a bad guy. So that's what's my experience with Fox. The enemy's experience with Fox Force was the stuff of legend. The unit had distinguished itself years earlier by fighting like tigers alongside of South Vietnamese recon platoon that had an outsized reputation for bravery and ferocity. They also wore red scarves, and they were so impressed with the men of Fox Force that they gave their scarves to the Americans. And from that day forward, the men of Fox Force wore those red scarves everywhere, all the time, even on combat missions, which is kind of like shouting, hey, Charlie, come and get me. I dare you. Alan Bucklew, the board chairman at VVMF, served as Lieutenant John Headley's RTO in Fox Force. We weren't afraid that our scarves would be seen, Bucklew says. Our view was that if they were seen by an NVA soldier, it would be the last thing he ever saw. According to legend, the enemy offered a $10,000 bounty to any soldier who could kill a member of Fox Force and take his scarf. One day I'm, I'm, I'm walking past uh, the, the Colonel's hooch and he called my name. Yes, sir. He said, come on in here. Yes, sir. He sat me down, talked a little bit. How do you like it here? <laughs> oh, it's fun, sir. I love it. Uh, what do you think of that? What do you think of your soldier? And all those kinds of things. And then he said, are you a drinking man? And I said, yes, sir. I've been known to do that once in a while. So he reached down into his field desk. He pulled out a bottle of scotch and two glasses. And we, we drank to the regiment. And he said, I got a request for you. Yes, sir. Um, I want you to take Fox Force, the recon platoon. Um, now, to be a recon platoon leader is the primo assignment for an infantry officer, first lieutenant type in the whole United States Army. I mean, those are that's a select group of guys. And he said, I, I, I want you to take Fox. And I talked for a few minutes. He said, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, sir, um, can I say no? He said, why would you want to say no? I said, well, sir, I don't know that I'm experienced enough to go take those guys out and do what they've been doing. I think I need a little bit more experience. I need to go get shot at a couple more times. This is August, maybe late August, uh, after I'd been in a battalion for five, six weeks. And he, and he kind of looked at me and he said, well, okay. And so I walked out. And and I second-guessed my decision, but I thought, Jesus, I, I don't know that I really am up to doing what those guys do. And I put them in harm's way if I go there and, and I step all over myself trying to do something that I shouldn't be doing. So probably a week later, I walked past the old man's suits again. Lieutenant Headley, yes, sir. Come on in here, yes, sir. At that point, he had the bottle of scotch out in the glasses. We drank to the regiment. Uh, and he said, um, you remember the last time you were in here? Oh, yes, sir. You remember the request I had of you? Yes, sir. Okay, this time it's not a request. You, you are the new Fox 6. You are now the platoon leader for the recon platoon of 1st and 14th. And he had my 
platoon sergeant standing out, hiding back behind his, his hooch so I wouldn't see him, and brought in Staff Sergeant Harris, uh, who just filled the doorway of this GP small, and said, uh, Sergeant Harris, this is Lieutenant Headley. Uh, he's your new Fox 6. Uh, take care of him. Teach him what he needs to know. And so I walked out with Jimmy Harris. This is a very, very close unit, closer than any of the line platoons in the battalion because they got into hairier stuff and were more dependent upon each other to get back. And so Jimmy took me, after the squad leaders, he took me around and introduced me to all the soldiers. I think I probably had maybe 25 guys. Okay? And the last guy he introduced me to was a guy by the name of Gary Nelson. And Gary Nelson was a quintessential peacenik Vietnam soldier. He had a mountain yard headband on. Uh, he had no shirt. He had all kinds of beads around his neck to include a big peace symbol. Um, his hair was long, hadn't shaved in a while, and he's cleaning his weapon. And Jimmy took up to him and said, hey, uh, Nelson, this is, uh, this is Lieutenant Headley, our new Fox 6. And he looked, Gary looked up at me and said, with a peace symbol, he said, hey, man. And I thought to myself, okay, I don't need him in this unit. We'll go see if we can put him somewhere else. Fortunately, I never did. He turned out to be one of the best soldiers and one of the bravest men that I have ever been around. He was one incredible soldier, but uh, just a different personality. So, uh, as you know, we talked about they wore red scarves. Well, I didn't get one. Uh, I had to go prove myself. I had to go prove myself worthy of wearing a red scarf, which meant I don't remember how many, two or three maybe, um, exercises outside the wire, a couple of contacts with the bad guys. Um, and one day Jimmy came up and said, okay, six, you've earned this. And he tied it around my neck. And that's where it stayed for the rest of the time I was with Fox. A little bit about those guys. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Okay, because they were phenomenal young men. Um, they weren't baby killers, druggies, rapists, or any of the other crap that we got labeled with when we came home. These were outstanding young men uh, that could hold their place right next to the revered soldier from the greatest generation of World War II. We did get into some really, really hairy situations. Um, as I got in with them, I learned that a lot of times we operated outside the range of radios. We're on our own. A lot of times, many times, we're outside the range of direct support artillery. Um, so we had no big gun support on a lot of occasions. We got 17, 18, 19 guys wandering around the jungles uh, all by themselves. Uh, a lot of times, not, I swear to God, not able to talk to anybody. Um, and, and, and me realizing that if I got in trouble, it was on me. It was on me. I had nobody to call a lot of times. Um, so one of the lessons learned for me, particularly with Fox, was 
the heaviest responsibility you can give a man is to be responsible for other mother's sons. There is no responsibility heavier than that. Every one of those lives was my responsibility. And you know, when you hear the stories, I think I heard it on one of the things I listened to that when the bullets started kind of uprange, all the, all the eyes turned to you. Well, not so much with Fox, we had immediate reaction drills if we got into a contact, guys automatically, squad leaders automatically know how to react and, and, and what to do. Uh, but we were, and this is not patting myself on the back because it's not me, it's the guys, but we were very, very good at what we did. Uh, we were probably, the 1st Battalion, 14th Infantry was uh, the only American unit in almost all of two corps, maneuver unit, permanently in two corps, which was a huge, huge geographical area. Every once in a while, one of the 101st or whatever would come in on an operation and, and, and operate an RAO. But most of the time it was us. Um, and we had a, and we covered everything from, you know, almost to the coast up to the Cambodian border in the mountains where we spent a good deal of our time trying to catch the little guys coming off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. After a short break, John recounts one of his hairiest missions with Fox Force and the jaw-dropping, tear-jerking, knee-buckling echo of that experience nearly 40 years later. Stick around. On Veterans Day 1996, VVMF unveiled an exact replica of the wall that could be packed into an 18-wheeler and hauled to cities and towns all across America. Since then, the wall that heals has been displayed in nearly 700 communities throughout the nation, spreading the healing legacy of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to millions of visitors. If you want to know more about this traveling exhibit and the impact it can have on a community, check out episode 15 of this podcast. The Wall That Heals and the Mobile Education Center that travels with it will be in Monticello, Minnesota, July 20 to 23, and Centerville, Ohio, July 27 through 30. To see the rest of this year's tour schedule and to learn how you can bring the Wall That Heals to your town, visit vvmf.org. Hi, I'm Anne Margaret. I went to Vietnam to entertain the troops in 1966. In 1968, my guys, my gentlemen, if you lived through the Vietnam War era, you know the impact that the war had. But today, we are in danger of history being lost. Current generations know very little about the war or the people who served. As more of our Vietnam vets pass away each day, their stories are being lost to history. Together, we can change that. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund is the organization that built the wall. It works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. Let's help keep the promise that the wall was built on. Never forget. Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. The Registry is an online community created by VVMF that connects veterans of the Vietnam War era with each other. 
By signing up for the registry, you can upload and share stories and images, connect with others who served during the Vietnam era, and connect your service with people you knew whose names are now on the wall. Join the community and preserve your legacy or family members by signing up today at vvmf.org registry. I mean, we, we had a lot of contact with the bad guys. Like I said, we never were ambushed, but we caught them a lot of times. And, and we had a lot of small, if you can call a firefight small, we had a lot of small firefights against three, four, or five bad guys. Uh, and we normally were successful in eliminating all of them. Um, I never got hung up on body count. No, that was the measure of success for Petunia was body count. I, I, I never called in the body count. That, that was a horrible way to call to, to quantify success in that environment, and I refused to do it. We get a call from the division commander. The battalion talk gets a call from the division commander. I want Fox Force to go do this. And evidently, some intel had picked up what might have been the retreating NBA leaving the air, because we got, they hit us the second night as well, not through the wire, but indirect fire, direct fire, whatever, and a little bit on the third night. Uh, and then they took off. And so I did basically a dusk combat assault. Um, no time to do a VR a, a, a reconnaissance. I picked out a spot on the map. Uh, and so, again, there's nothing worse than nighttime in Vietnam because we weren't equipped to deal with that and we didn't know the terrain. And I'm sure other people have told you, you know, the night belonged to Charlie, not to us. Um, and so we, fortunately, the LZ was cold. We unasked the birds, moved into a tree line, and we hunkered down. And I had found, I had had a chance to talk with my squad leader. On the map, I showed on a small hill next to the CP, next to the LZ, maybe 150 meters away or so, that we could easily traverse in the dark, and that we were going to go to the top of this hill and settle. Um, so we hunkered down for a while, make sure no noise, nobody heard us, saw us, whatever. And we very quietly and stealthily walked up, moved up to the top of this hill, just as the sun was setting. Um, I managed to get, I, like I said, I hadn't had replacements yet for my casualties. Um, so we were under strength, uh, but we set up a perimeter up there. Uh, and we had no combo. We had no combo with battalion. We had no combo with the Red Legs. Charlie Signers on the fort frantically trying to get support because we got nobody out there. I had been told that the artillery was going to do a hip shoot for me the next day, where they'd move a couple of tubes, one or two tubes forward on their own to a place where they'd get me within their range so they could provide me support if I needed it. Um, but I went ahead and you know did my thing with the map and registrations and whatever. Um, it was very quiet. And I put out LPs and we hunkered down for the night. And we were going to go follow the bad guys the next day and see what was up. Well, during that night, I, I don't know what time, I, I got a call on one of the radios from one of my LPs that he heard movement out there. Um, asked him what it was, he said he couldn't tell, but there was noise. And then I got it from another who said he heard what sounded like rifle slings dragging on the ground. Um, then I got it from another who said he thought he could hear metal clicking. Okay, the bad guys are out there. 
And I thought, okay, this guy knows where I am. And he knows what I have. And he's still coming for me. Which tells me he probably has more than I do. Um, really, uh, that was one of the scariest nights I ever had. Because there I am on this hilltop with nowhere to go. And bad guys coming to get me. Uh, and no radio. Uh, and I got these other mother sons who are depending on me to get them home. And I finally figured a couple of courses of action. Uh, we weren't going to just sit there and die. Uh, there are a couple of courses of action where I didn't want to throw hand grenades down the hill because they bounce off the trees and bounce back at you sometimes. But we could maybe roll hand grenades down the hill. We could do a mad minute and everybody open up and see if we could scare them off with that. Um, we could charge into it, you know, like in the old days, fix bayonets and go. Except I didn't have bayonets, so I couldn't do that. Um, but I did find another little hill doing a map with my red lens on my on my flashlight underneath the poncho, another little hill. I got hold of Jimmy Harris, who was Ranger qualified, and said, okay, Jimmy, uh, we're going to E&E off this hill because we're in deep shit. And you lead the guys to the other hilltop and I'll cover you and get them out of here. Kind of strange that one side of my perimeter had no movement, which told me maybe the bad guys were waiting for me to do what I was. I thought I was going to do. But you got to take that chance. you got to roll the dice and see what comes up. It's the only recourse I had other than stand in place and die in place, basically. Um, and then all of a sudden, Charlie Siner comes over as a six. six. I got Puff. Puff the Magic Dragon, C-47 Gunship, AC-47 Gunship. And there's a puff bird all of a sudden coming in. I don't remember his call sign, but he knew mine. He called down, understand you're in trouble. Well, how the hell did you find out? And, and, and what happened was while we couldn't receive communications, Division Rear was monitoring our communications and picking up what we were sending out looking for help. So anyway, puff comes over and I'm thinking, okay, what are we going to do with this? And he said, do you have a strobe light? I said, yeah, I got one. He says, okay, what I want you to do is to uh, take off your steel pot and put it on your lap. Have all your guys pull back and put their boots in your lap and turn on that strobe light. And everything 15 feet out from that is mine. What? I'm going to surround you with fire. Oh my God. Tell your guys to put their hands over their ears and open their mouths to try to equalize the pressure because you are, have never experienced what you're about to experience. There was no panic in my guys. Absolutely no panic. I whispered out to them what was going on. I never had one guy show any amount of fear. They were ready to do anything I told them to do. There was absolutely no panic. They were all locked and loaded. And if we were going down, there was a whole bunch of those other guys who were going to go down with us. 
you know, they would, they would, they would, they would, they would die fighting on this mountaintop all by ourselves. Right? We did what we were told and puffs lit up the night. All the hot shell casings came down on us. Um, and there was this absolute cone of red all the way around us. We heard secondary explosions. It was so noisy, we couldn't hear screams if anybody got hit. He got finished expending. He saw a whole bunch of flashlights coming down an opposite ridgeline. We never used flashlights at night, so those were the bad guys. So he flew over there and puffed, breathed fire again, and all the flashlights went out. He circled around all night long until the sun came up and called down and said, how are you doing? And I said, thanks to you, we're doing fine. Everybody's, every, every, everybody is alive and well, thanks to you guys. Uh, and, and that was an, ex, an incredible experience during which a lot of guys would fall apart. You know, you're going to die. This is a last resort. Not my guys. Not my guys. That wasn't the first time that combat air support had prevented Fox Force from being wiped out. Just a month earlier, following a sapper attack that nearly overran Firebase St. George, the platoon was sent out to plug a gaping hole in the perimeter. John could see a full company of enemy soldiers preparing to attack his 14 or 15 guys. He refers to this as the time he almost became the George Armstrong Custer of the Vietnam War. This time, it was a pair of UH-1C helicopters known as Charlie model gunships that saved him and his men. But we'll come back to that. John retired from the Army in 1991. He took a job at Raytheon, where the Japanese he'd learned as a foreign area officer was put to good use until, eventually, he and his wife moved to Denver, North Carolina. But I wasn't ready to quit. I needed something to do. And, and so I started networking, trying to find another job, uh, something around here that I could do. Um, I met a guy who had been a Marine. He said, what do you miss most about being out of the Army? I said, people, shared sense of mission, uh, being able to count on them, being able to believe them. Uh, you don't find that necessarily in the civilian world. Uh, and he said, well, go up and check out this place up in Mooresville called Pat's Cornet Coffee Shop. It's run by a former Charlie Model gunship pilot with his wife, um, and they just sell coffee to people. But he has a soft spot in his heart for Vietnam vets. And what's the name of the town that Pat's? Mooresville, North Carolina. Mooresville. Mooresville. It's home of NASCAR. Um, it's probably about 20 miles from where I am now. Uh, so I, I did. I went in and... Met Richard, uh, Richard Warren, who was running it. He welcomed me home. Uh, got to be good friends with him. I decided I want to do my own thing. So I set up my own company, do consulting for people wanting to do work in Japan. And, and shortly thereafter, I had a, 
uh, a reunion of my recon platoon here. So I asked Richard, I said, look, um, can I bring my guys up before you open on a Saturday morning so that you can welcome them home? I had a girl Friday named Cheryl Ann who worked with them. She made little key rings and with with beads on a leather thong of representing the U.S. flag or Vietnamese flag or, you know, green for army and scarlet for Marines and, and that kind of thing that she gave to everybody. And he said, sure. So we all had our red scarves on and we trooped on up to Mooresville. Only the guys. I didn't take the wives and kids with me. And we walked in and God bless Richard Ward. He had two tape decks going. And these days I have to explain to people what a tape deck is. Um, but he had two tape decks going. One was the wop, 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 if you the helicopter blades that makes any grunt's heart just beat. And the other was Vietnam era music. And he went around and thanked every one of my guys for their service and their service in Vietnam. Cheryl Ann went around and gave every one of them a hug and a kiss and gave them this keychain and let them know how important they were. And Michael, I looked around and I had all these hardcore, hard-bitten combat infantrymen with tears in her eyes. Jimmy Harris is standing there with tears pouring down his cheeks. They'd never been welcomed home. They'd never had this kind of a reception. Gary Nelson, the soldier that John had initially thought was not a great fit for Fox Force, was also among those who were overcome by the reception that Richard and Cheryl put on at Pat's Gourmet Coffee Shop. Gary has since passed away. We stayed about an hour and I brought him back to the house. I went up a couple of weeks later to thank Richard for what he had done. And I walked into Pat's Gourmet Coffee Shop. And Richard's just a little guy, but he grabbed me and said, John, I got to talk to you. And he started dragging me out of the shop onto the sidewalk. And I thought, holy crap, my guy stole something or, or broke something. You know, I'm in trouble. What's your first thought? That was my first thought. <laughs> These are a rough bunch of guys still. And uh, so I, he got me out on, on his corner and he started asking me questions. Were you in such and such a place in December of 1969? Yes. Were you in such and such a situation? Yes. That was the time I almost became the George Armstrong Custer in the Vietnam War. Um, he said, were you in deep shit? And I said, yes. Were you having combo problems? Yes. Did you have a fac overhead? Yes. And he said, do you remember who your first air support was that day? And what he's talking about is I, I've got 14 or 15 guys in the circle to include me and my RTOs. Uh, we had stumbled into an NVA battalion in the bunker complex that was coming for us. And I was looking at an NVA company forming up in the wood line Bugles blowing, whistles blowing, whatever, and they were going to come get me because they knew that I was a pretty small villain unit. And these two Charlie Mala gunships rolled in on this wood line um, and expended. And when they circled around for their second pass, I didn't see an NVA company formed up in the wood line anymore. And, he, and, and, and Richard, that day outside, he said, do you remember who your first air support was? And I'm sorry, Richard, I know. And I said, I had, I had a handset in one ear and, and, and my trigger going on the other hand. No, I, I don't remember who it was. They said it was me. It was me and my, my wingman. 
And my knees almost gave out. I mean, here's a guy who saved our lives. Right? And I said, how in the hell do you know that? He said, because we circled around to come in for another run. My crew chief gets on the horn and says, who are those crazy MFers down there wearing red scarves? So years later in Mooresville, North Carolina, I run into a guy who probably saved the lives of my soldiers and me on that day in December of 1969. And all of you guys were reuniting in his cafe. Yes. Without any, I mean, obviously without knowing. Without having any idea of who he was other than being Richard Ward and we knew he'd been a gunship pilot. So let me ask you this. How, I mean, you guys all walked in there wearing red scarves. Yeah. But it was it was sometime later that he put the pieces together. It was, a, it was a week or two later when I went up to thank him because he was busy going around welcoming all the guys, you know, and maybe the red scarves hadn't hit right away or something. I, I don't know mm-hmm. why he didn't mm-hmm. ask mm-hmm. that question that day. Um, but there's no indi- any indication that he was familiar with us at all. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I, my knees about buckled. I, I I broke down because here's a guy who saved our lives. Then all of a sudden I was meeting about 35 years, 40 years later. Mm. Um, and, and there was no doubt about the fact that he was there and because all the details matched of my situation and, and, and what he did in our red scarves. When I told my guys about it, it was the same reaction for all of them. I met a guy who was responsible for them being around and having kids, and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the guy was a was a saint, and that was his thing was to take care of vets. John and Richard became close friends, but within a year, Richard passed away from illness related to Agent Orange exposure. Before he died. Richard wanted to form a nonprofit called Welcome Home Veterans to carry forward his work with the community he loved. We managed to form a 501c3 and get it approved, um, named Welcome Home Veterans. Um, and we were able to tell him that shortly before he passed. When he passed, I was invalided as well. Um, but when we covered, uh, we found... we. There, are, there was a crew of us who wanted to keep Richard's spirit alive and keep this Welcome Home Veterans alive as an entity. We found a restaurant down near the interstate that allows us to go in on Saturday mornings before they opened and just get together and talk. Um, with that small group, uh, we formed a board of directors. Uh, we had a couple of meetings and we progressed. Uh, we found a place a small place to rent. We rented that and got active again and started getting donations and whatever. We found a bigger place. I've been the president and or executive director for 14 years. Uh, we have built it up to an, an absolutely in, in, in incredible place. Check us out on welcomevets.com. Um, we take care of all kinds of needy vets. We're all volunteers. Uh, the place is now paid off. Uh, a long process to do that. Um, and and it, it's a, it's an incredible gathering place for veterans. And we have Richard started this tradition of free coffee for vets on Thursday. And we still do free coffee for vets on Thursday. 
But it's now Richard's Coffee Shop. It's not anymore Pat's Gourmet Coffee Shop. It's Richard's Coffee Shop. Um, so my... Um, I can never... I can never pay Richard back for what he did for my guys and probably me that day in December of 1969. So I'm doing everything I can to pay forward. I'm trying to keep his spirit alive. More than 21,000 veterans have signed the guest book at Richard's Coffee Shop, which is a gathering place, a support system, a living military museum, a gift shop, an eatery, and a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to honoring and advocating for America's veterans, active duty personnel, and emergency services personnel. You'll find Richard's Coffee Shop right downtown in Mooresville, North Carolina. John's book, Saddle Up, The Story of a Red Scarf, is available at Amazon.com. And so is his other book, From the Shadows, a tribute to the 1968 West Point graduates who gave their lives in Vietnam. We're grateful to John for sharing some of his experiences with us. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. We'll see you then.